This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. I'm Jack Evans, a digital writer at BikeRadar.com. This week I'm joined by a very special guest, Round the World cycling record holder Jenny Graham. In 2018, Jenny completed the fastest female circumnavigation of the globe by bicycle. Self-supported over 124 days and 29,000 kilometres, Jenny rode through the scorching Gobi Desert and a freezing Australian winter. This was 19 days faster than the previous fastest woman. Jenny is on tour promoting her book about her Guinness World Record setting ride called Coffee First, Then the World. Appropriately, she is cycling between the 20 venues and in our Bristol studio here today. But before we we begin, please remember to like, share and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks very much for coming in today, Jenny. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you, Jack. It's really lovely to have stopped riding and actually settle down and get a good chat with someone. (laughs) How many um, venues have you um, spoken at so far and how far have you ridden? So I started uh, five days ago and I think it's the longest five days of my life. I was saying this morning, why we must be a weekend by now, are we? Um, This is the fourth last night in Bristol was the fourth talk that I gave. And along the way, like you said, I'm pedalling between all the venues, but also I'm meeting up with local bike clubs and groups and we're going out on socials, uh, folks showing me like the local rides on road, off road. Um, And so it's been great. We even, we went over over to Oxford at the weekend and there was a bunch of women having a, a camp out and so then we met them like halfway between Kingston and Oxford and camped out with them they took us to the pub which was very kind of them and then yeah and then we went to give the talk so it's been a massive social like yeah so far yeah uh, and you have ridden um 
Land's End to John of Groats in four days before, but this enables you to do a little bit more sightseeing on the way. Exactly. The Land's End to John of Groats was actually over New Year as well. So we were riding through like 17 hours of darkness and we had a few hours of uh, daylight and it was pretty grim. So this is a much nicer way to do it. Yeah, a month on the road. And how long um, in the works was the book? Wow. So the book actually took me about five times longer to write than it did to ride around the world. (laughs) Says a lot more about my character, I think. Um, So I've been thinking about the book. I mean, as soon as I got back, my sister, I've got an older sister, um, and she was like, you have to write a book, you have to write a book. And uh, writing, you know, it it didn't interest me, I suppose. I like speaking, I like communicating with people through through talking. And I did a lot of these talks that that I'm doing now and that was my preferred method but learning how to write and how to get the stories out onto paper took quite a lot of yeah processing it was a whole new skill set for me to to learn so it feels like it's been ongoing forever (laughs) and did you rely on audio diaries or were you managing to take some kind of notes uh, through the through the ride yeah I started taking notes for the first week and then I lost the ability to be able to write it was so bad I was so tired I was riding like 15 hour days and then lying in my bivy bag like trying to like write down things and falling asleep and I so then I stopped and again my big sister was like I was like oh I can't take these notes but I needed to for Guinness like the Guinness World Record needed a note of what each day looked like so she was like keep audio just keep audio diaries I was already putting audio back to BBC Radio Scotland so I was set up for it it was easy to do Um, and then these audio diaries then became podcasts they became my um, my evidence for Guinness they became the structure of my book you know, they were just like absolutely golden, golden sort of bits of evidence to capture the moment. So um, my mum and stepdad painstakingly during lockdown um, transcribed them all, <laughs> which they say they enjoyed, but it must have been awful. Some of them were like half an hour long and I'm just rambling by the side of the road. Um, and then, yeah, from there, then I sort of piece things together a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine um, if I strung together several 300 kilometre days, I would not be making much sense. So uh, fair play (laughs) for them for transcribing those. Exactly. And it's amazing when you're listening to them, how many sentences I start and then go off on a tangent and never finish them. (laughs) It's like, oh, goodness. Yeah, I hope I'm not like that in real life. Could you tell us a little bit about, about the title of the book? Coffee First, Then the World. It's definitely a bit of a life motto for me. Um, I've always been a fan of coffee, but when I was out on the road going around the world, it became a real crutch. You know, it became this comfort in the morning that if I could camp somewhere while well, I was in a bivy bag, so if I could lie down somewhere that I was within reaching distance of coffee in the morning. I found it hugely motivating to get out of the bivy bag and just to pedal that like five kilometres, 10 kilometres to the coffee shop. And it just like that mental game of like, right, get up and get going. And then you're not facing like a big long day. You're just facing to the coffee stop. And then once you get your coffee, then you can set the next target. So it was like breaking down this massive mission into little 
bite-sized chunks. And yeah, coffee just just really worked for me, you know, just, yeah, motivated me. So it was uh, ritualistic as well as sort of a caffeine hit in the morning. Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, some of the coffee was really questionable. <laughs> you know, it was far more psychological all the way across like Russia and down into Asia. Um, it was all like instant sugary coffee. So uh, I, yeah, like they loved Nescafe, three in, three in one sachets, you know, perfect for camping, that kind of coffee. But yeah, it just like, I didn't care. That was perfect. It was, yeah, it was amazing. You know, like now I'm in Bristol and I'm swanning about all these gorgeous coffee shops, just like with all, uh, you know, beautiful milks and beautiful beans. Um, but actually, when you've not got that choice, like a sachet of Nescaf does the job. Yeah, compared to having a, a team with you, uh, that is, could that be one of the benefits of going self-supported that you have to seek out some kind of shop or cafe and yes. see a little bit more while you're doing the ride? Exactly. That's such a good question because people often think, oh, it must be much easier to do it supported. But I actually think it's the other way around because I had the luxury of like my head thinking about other things, like my, me having like all these different missions that I went on to find food, find accommodation, to uh, work out my flight. You know, I could keep my brain busy. Whereas a supported ride, they just have to get on their bike and ride for a set, like, you know, a really tight schedule as well, a set amount of time, and everything's taken care of. And, like, that's heavy on your mind, like, to have that focus to not be thinking about other things, other logistics. So, yeah, I quite liked it. And actually being on your own as well. I mean, I did go, you know, I was on a mission. I went pretty, like, pretty hard. But I also meant if I fancied another coffee, I would just have one. <laughs> You know, if I wanted to stay another 10 minutes, then I would just stay another 10 minutes and try not to. But, you know, ultimately, of course, that happened. So what what do you feel about there in the record book, such as the Guinness World Records, being no distinction between self-supported and unsupported world attempts? Brilliant. Yeah, it's really interesting when you look at the history of the records and the way that it's evolved. Um, I think that I understand why at the moment it's a really big job, such a big sliding scale of what is supported and what is unsupported. Because I have a background in bikepacking races, very grassroots stuff, like I had a really clear idea that I wanted to be as purely self-supported as I possibly could be. So I stuck to that rules of not like connecting with friends for help anywhere around the world, only using services that were open to everybody. Um, you know, I didn't have anybody do my logistics. I was like sorting everything out. And ultimately that only matters to me because that that was the way that I wanted to do it. But and I think that everybody taking on something like this should be, have the ability to do it whatever way they want, like whatever way they get the most out of it. So I don't, it's not that I feel like there should be hard and fast rules set in place, but where I think it would be helpful for there to be a supported record and an unsupported record is because ultimately the supported record costs more money. And ultimately, the majority of people on this planet will be able to go faster if they're supported. You know, um, there are some absolute machines 
routines. I'm thinking of Mike Hall when I say this, you know, that just did an unbelievably self-supported ride. But the yeah, the majority of people will be able to go much faster when they're supported. Now, if you need to get together something like you know, like Mark's, I think, Mark Beaumont's um, supported ride cost, what was it? I think it might have been £500,000. You know, it was a massive team. There was like so many logistics that went into that. Now, mine, self-supported ride cost fifteen grand, And at the time, getting fifteen grand together, it was so hard. It was really, really difficult for somebody like to go out and give it a go. And I think as the records get tighter and tighter and it's harder to shave the time off them, then if we allow it just to actually be the same record, then it's just going to become elitist. Like it's not going to be possible for someone like me who hasn't got the financial backing, who, you know, doesn't have the contacts in a corporate world to get that money together, then we're just not going to have the ability to give it a go. And I think that is really sad. Um, so for that reason alone, then I I really hope that the future of the Guinness World Record changes. But um, I'm in no way a purist for what other people do. I think it's great. Some people that I've spoken to take support for certain parts of the journey, like going across the Australia and New Zealand. You know, it was winter out there. It was so tough. And I know that, <coughs> I know that some people people do the rest of it supported but will take support in that bit or you know they might not be as pure as I was about who I would accept things from and things like that and and that's fine they were probably having a nicer time (laughs) ultimately uh, when I was reading back on my notes and when I was like explaining in the book where my thought processes were when I was making some really peculiar choices about what is supported and what's unsupported um then I did think as, you know, five years on with a bit of reflection, like, yeah, you might have taken that a bit far, Jane. Like, maybe it didn't matter that you like you didn't have to be that strict about it. But at the time, it just meant everything to me that I wanted to to ride it like that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, hats off to anyone who leaves the house really, you know, mm. <laughs> gets that start line. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. That, that's the first challenge, isn't it? Just just getting out there. It's and the then, biggest one, isn't mm. it? Yeah. And it's interesting how you and Mark Beaumont, both um, Scottish ultra-endurance riders, take take really different approaches to these attempts, but you seem to get on pretty well. So I think that shows that either either approach is, is fine, isn't it? Yeah, and that's the really interesting thing. Like Mark and I have got such different personalities, such different approaches to it. But actually when we're riding our bikes together, we're just, you know, doing exactly the same thing. You've got the same sort of mindset to go out there and do the same miles. And I think um, if you're that way inclined that you get a lot from endurance stuff, then yeah, ultimately it doesn't matter. And it's funny because, I mean, I, you know, I make fun of Mark um, to his face about, you know, how supported he was. And, you know, perhaps it was a bit easy, was it, you know, when you're getting a massage and stuff at the side of the road. But it really is uh, just in jest because it was, 
Guinness's first book, The Man Who Cycled the World, that really opened up the world record to me. Like, you know, when he first did that, it was like, right, okay, this is a thing. Like, and that really planted a seed. So um, I think the, like his, yeah, his first pedal around the planet, he was definitely knew how to rough it. Yeah, he he really did that um, that first ride self-supported, and it was more like it was well over a hundred days rather than the the eighty day mark he later oh, yeah. set with, with a crew. Yeah, I think it might have even been one hundred and ninety eight. It was like, and even then, it was like taking loads off the record that was already there, and that evolution of the record and just watching how it just like gets shaved and shaved and shaved off time um, is fascinating. And when I was again researching for the book, I just saw that. The males' record, you know, it first got set in the eighties, whereas the females, like the first, there's only been three of us that have held the record, and the first one, Juliana, was like in two thousand and twelve. So I'm just like, God, like we have got some catching up to do, girls. You know, like I, I really look forward to the next woman who has the opportunity to get out there and absolutely smash the the time that I set on it. Yeah. How does it feel that your mark still stands? almost five years on now. You know, the book took me so long to write that during the process, I was like, I really hope somebody doesn't go out and beat it right now because if I could just get this book out, it would be great. Um, And it was, uh, yeah, but the book was taking me so long. I was like, oh, they've got to, um, like it's going to get, it's going to get going, uh, like taken. And there were a few women that were reaching out to me and they were going for it. Like they'd followed my story. They thought they could do better or do faster or, wanted to take it on and I was like well that is great but I was definitely like feeling this panic um, about the book and how it would be better if it went out when I was still still carrying uh, although I'm sure it would have been fine if, it, if I wasn't um, and then of course Covid happened and just as Covid like restrictions were lifting then it's all kicked off in Russia and Ukraine and it's just made that route like very difficult for anybody to take on right now and um, between that two sort of things that are going on um, so I mean of course, it's nice still to hold the record, but I think the reasons that I've still got it, or, or at least the reasons that no woman has gone and attempted to take it, um, are pretty sad. So that's like that. That's a shame, and I hope that that um, yeah, like resolves soon enough. So is um, yeah, so somebody else can take it on, not just for that, like for other reasons too, other more important reasons. Wouldn't it be great if? Um, uh an athlete who's been part of your adventure syndicate could maybe go on to to challenge it how how would that feel for you i know well last night actually i'm at the talk a woman who i don't know that well but i know well enough through the endurance world um and she goes out and she does races and stuff and she was at the talk and you know i'd said this about like supporting another woman she was like oh jenny you know I would love to do that. And I all honestly just felt like deep admiration for feeling like that and seeing that little spark in, in her eyes. So um, I hope it wouldn't hurt too much. I think I've got to a place with it that I realise that records are 100% there to break and it can only be a good thing. And it's not like a thing that you used to have and that you'll lose. Like I'll always have that moment in time where I was the record holder. So um, yeah, I, ho- I, I hope I've not held on to it too tightly, but who knows that even Ego is a funny thing, Jack, isn't it? 
<laughs> I'll come back to you on that one. <laughs> Why do you think the gap between male and female ultra endurance cyclists appears to be narrower than in other disciplines like world tour racing, for example? Mm, I mean, yeah, I mean, foot, like I, I need to confess here, I am, although I am bonkers about bikes, of course, spend a lot of time in them and love the grassroots stuff. Like, I don't follow cycling as such you know I'm not like um, I don't know the ins and outs of professional cycling and I guess I've never yeah it's just like not been my past but I think um, speaking from the ultra side of things things that I've actually seen out in races and that I can like tell from like speaking to you know male and female friends um, I think like because your head is so much to do like in cycle with like the endurance stuff and um, the women that I've seen racing are very good at keeping their head together and um, like riding hard but also keeping enough in the tank to look after themselves the next day and perhaps get into less of a hole um, 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 that I mean, that's just speaking if, as friends. And I think, um, I mean, I've heard people saying things like our body fat, the way that we hold on to more body fat, the men then can also like keep us warmer at night. So then if you're going over long distances, then, you know, you've ultimately got like a little bit of a superpower there. Um, there's other things that um, people say because of the like speed and the pace that you tend to be going, that endurance um, it doesn't rely on the same muscles, I guess, that um, maybe more short, sharper bursts, uh, like the shorter races that you're talking about, do rely on. Um, and therefore, it's like playing into the into women's strengths. But um, I mean, yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I just can go on what I see. Yeah. And that seems to be, yeah, factors. Yeah, it's a, it's a really really complicated issue because, like you say, the sort of the the body mind um, dichotomy. Yeah. Um, but I have heard people say um, that ultra endurance riding is sort of sixty or seventy percent head. Do you, yeah. Are you able to put a figure on it or? Is it difficult to say? I mean, it is difficult to say, isn't it? Because like <laughs> your legs and body gets exhausted as well. And um, I think if you've conditioned and trained yourself that you can ride for, you know, multiple days, 100 plus miles, multiple days. Like if you've got that conditioning and your legs are putting that out and your body's like used to that then ultimately then it just comes down to your mind because once you're able to produce that and put output that day after day, then it has to it has to be your mind because your body is able to do it, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, you know, thinking about the, the male-female thing as well, like I think the when I was researching into the record and, and just the sport in general and the female participation, like I think you know, just seeing um, like the society's pressures that women have had. Um, it's maybe not been it, like women have really, really had to fight to be in sport. They've not been supported in the same way in sport. They've not been represented the same way in sport. And I'm talking specifically about cycling. And that plays a massive impact in it. So when there's things and like I say, I don't, I, I don't know a lot about the the sport itself. But when there's, when there's 
um, when we're looking at like stronger male teams than female teams and races that men do and women are only just beginning to do, like we have to wonder, well, if women for the past, you know, 40, 50 years had been getting the same input, had been seeing themselves there thinking that they would be able to do that, have the financial support to, uh, support to do that, have the training to do that, then who knows, like maybe we would be in more of a level playing field. Um, so I think that also plays a, plays into it as well. Yeah, so definitely. So that would be really um, interesting to see in, in the sort of future of ultra endurance, yeah. like how, how that plays out. Yeah. Um, because I guess in ultra running, it's been quite, it's been equal for quite a long time, hasn't it? It's, uh, yeah. I was thinking of in um, ultra endurance cycling, Fiona Cole being, being, a, being yeah. the first female winner of the Transcontinental in yeah. 2019. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think she, again, um, it was cancelled for COVID and then the following year it was it was held. She was also highly competitive. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's more and more races that, that, that like the spot, if they've got a good enough gender balance in the start line, then, you know, the top 10 riders are going to be a good split, male, female. Uh, the GB Duro was a perfect example of that a couple of years ago when I think there was five of the top 10 finishers were um, lassies. And yeah, that was that was incredible to see. And yeah, I hope we see more and more of that. So it gets to the point that that's not a thing. Like mm -hmm. it's just a given, isn't it? Yeah. What are your future goals? You mentioned GB Giro there. Have you gonna? Have you still got the competitive edge to take part in? really arduous um, races like that? Um, I mean, I think, yeah, I'm not very sure. I, d I think so. Like, I love um, I love going out on big expeditions. I'm still touring a lot, um, still riding silly epics and stuff with my friends. Um, but I guess the, yeah, the book has, I think the book has been my my mission for so long that um, although I did, I was training for a bit and I did the Pan-Celtic and um, I was actually training for the Transcontinental and it when it got cancelled, the year that it got cancelled. So there's definitely like races up there that I really want to do. Oh, out in Morocco as well. I went out there to uh, to recce the route, the Atlas Mountain route. Really wanted to race that, but then work got in the way. So, um, and big stuff got in the way. So, uh, who knows what's going to happen when I make ho make it home and the book is done and out there? Then I'm so like still love training, still love seeing what I'm capable of and you know what my body can do. Um, but I think I'm like this summer. I'm really looking forward to like running more, doing a bit more trail running, doing a bit more open swimming, open water swimming, um, and just like like doing other things as well, you know. Um, and then coming into the end of the summer, just see see where we're at. But mm -hmm. and how enjoyable has it been going over some of the memories fr from the book and, and the ride? Um, has it brought back some terrors and some highlights as well? <laughs> I know, it's felt like when I sat down at the computer, it would be like a 12-hour therapy session. You know, you're like, oh my God. Um, it's It was one of that things that I had to really give empathy, so much empathy for the woman that I was writing about five years ago. You know, she like the decision she was making, I had to get into her headspace. I had to, um, you know, because obviously five years on when I'm I'm sitting in my comfortable house writing with a cup of coffee and like I've just 
been to my lovely comfortable bed then I make dif different decisions and I've got more reflection so it was like this combination matching this combination up of the the round the world me and the current writer me and like bringing a bit of both to the book um, so now it's done it's a bit like a type 2 fun adventure that now it's all over and it's on the bookshelves so I can finally be like oh you know it wasn't that bad was it you know it was like quite quite cathartic, I guess. Um, but at the time, it definitely felt like type two fun, big time. <laughs> and probably for everyone that had to listen to me bang on about it as well. <laughs> How much do you marvel at what you put up with and the, other, the adversity you overcame on that ride? That is such a good question because I, if I had never written a book, I would have never perhaps realised how tough I'd found it. You know, I very quickly went into public speaking, telling telling stories to crowds of people. You know, you get the reactions of the golden hits that you're telling and you're like, yes, this is brilliant. And then when you're alone with a book, there is literally nobody to play up to. Like you have to get into the really dark, gritty stuff. I wanted to, I didn't want to brush over the feelings. Like often, I think because of the pitch of my voice, people think I'm happy all the time. I'm actually not. I've just got like quite a high pitched, happy voice, you know. So I was like, okay. Um, and that's great. Like, I often am happy, but I didn't want to be like, yeah, this was great. It was all great. I was like, no, it wasn't all great. Like, some of it was really grim. Um, and so I think I, yeah, I managed to get that out in the book. I hope without moaning too much, but just like a reality of it. Um, and because of that, then I did a couple of times, I just sat back and I was like, that like you did good like you did really good and I'd never been able to give that to myself before the book writing um process but again it's funny I wasn't like saying it to me the writer sitting at the at the computer I was saying it to me the round the world rider from five years ago that was doing that because I was honestly reading my notes thinking I don't know if I could do that now <laughs> I don't know if I'd be driven enough to be like lying in that ditch again. My goodness, <laughs> I have so much drive for it. Um, and I mean, that's the important thing, isn't it? Like we've all got our own round the world. Um, and if you're driven enough to get it, then, you know, you will. Um, and yeah, that, that, that was like really good learning for me. Yeah. Perhaps this is something that, that could benefit the listeners, but what are your um, ultra endurance um, golden rules in terms of tech, planning, uh, nutrition, pacing? Mm, so I don't hold on too tightly to planning. It's not um, um, like once the route's done and I've got the basics, I never plan like really where I'm going to sleep and stuff like that because I think having the resilience to deal with what's happening in the here and now is like a really good skill set to have. Um, I think in terms of packing it's so individual for every single race and I think I've um I've got like a staple kit I suppose and then I just like add and take away from that my favorite new piece of kit has been this gorgeous pair of down trousers um and they are 
like so tiny and I've only had them for about a year and I actually use them on every single bikepacking trip. Like I actually wonder how I managed around the world without them, to be honest. Like, my God, these are brilliant. Um, so yeah, they've been they've been good fun to play about with in my kit. So any excuse to get them out. Um, I think trial and error, like there's so many, particularly if someone's done well at something and I've fallen into this as well. I'm like, oh, I must find out what time tires they were running because that's clearly why they went faster or must find out you know what like what exactly have they put in their kit and um, I suppose we're all so individual and what makes me go faster or sit on the bike for longer will be different than what makes you sit on the bike for longer and so it's like I'd really recommend going out and trying out your own system yeah find out what systems are out there what people have tried already but really just like know what makes you happy when things are going wrong um, so like my luxury item if I was going out apart from my down trousers um, my luxury item would be a pair of socks a little pair of woolly socks because I know, I know that I cannot sleep without them um, and sometimes if it's cold I take a big pair which actually in a bike packing setup can take up quite a lot of space but I just know like that is my comfort that is my comfort level um, and ultimately if I've got them on I'll be able to ride harder the next day other people don't suffer from cold feet so um, they wouldn't need that so that's like you know little little things like that coffee I stop <laughs> again I know that I stop if I stop within <clears throat> you know five ten minutes of coffee then I know that I'll get up quicker the next day so it's just sort of knowing these little things about you yeah and you're you're quite famous for your eclectic nutrition on the bike <laughs> is that also a case of trial and error yeah, eclectic nutrition's a good way of summing it up. Um, I, yeah, I mean, going around the world, it was just disgusting. I spoke to a, a nutritionalist, Dave McLeod, actually, climber. He was at Kendall Mountain Film Festival and he was training and like he was studying nutrition. And I told him like what I was up to and what my nutritional strategy had been like, which was basically fast food, garages, biscuits, that sort of things. And he was like, wow, I would have loved to do some tests on you. <laughs> and I think there was like a certain skill in there for literally being able to hoover up anything. Um, and now that I'm like not riding as much, I really watch what I'm eating a bit more. I've gone vegetarian. I, yeah, I've got like all these new rules in place. And I'm like, oh, it would be much harder for me to, to go out and do that now because, yeah, without completely blowing it. Um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the healthiest diet. I did drink a lot of water though. Yeah. I look back at some pictures and I'm like, you look surprisingly hydrated. <laughs> and and your bike, uh, your shand, you, you went around the world on it. It's great to see um you you're still riding that in today. Um mm. obviously a sturdy frame you've got on there. I know. I imagine the components have changed a few times though. Yeah, same wheels, same frame, same handlebars, actually. Um, so, yeah, the setup is exactly the same. Same tri bars as well on it. And I can tell it's the same tri bars because they're broken. So, like, I wobble off them a little bit. Um, but, yeah, she was uh, resurrected. She was my absolute best buddy out there. So in love with that bike. Um, she, I, she ended up with the name Little Pig as I was mid-Siberia. It was, like, four in the morning. The sun was just coming up I had meatloaf like 
blasting out of my headphones. It was like one of that moments and I rested it up against the wall and just got this wave of affection and from nowhere called her little pig and sort of give it a little pat on the saddle. So um, I was, yeah, it's fair to say we were very, very in love. And uh, But she did sit in a bit of a sorry state um, for a while afterwards. Well, not not straight away afterwards, but just like for the last year or so. So I put her into local bike shop um, and he just worked wonders on her. And now I'm riding her up the country on the book tour because it just felt like, how could I possibly take any other bike with me? Yeah. Oh. That's that's a great note to end on. Th- thanks very much for your uh, time, Jenny. It's been really interesting speaking to you and all the best with the rest of the tour. Nice one, Jack. Thanks so much. Thanks very much for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you did enjoy this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on your favourite podcast provider. And if there's anything we can improve, we'd be grateful for your feedback on the article at bikeradar.com or you can email us at podcast at bikeradar.com. Also, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share with whoever you think might enjoy it too. Thanks again for listening and speak soon. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar Podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode.